Can you hear me? Sorry, I can't tell from up here. Yeah? Good. Have you ever had wine from the wineskin? Have you? No? Oh, well, there you go. I have. Um, in my home country, that is the common way for my people to have wine out of a, a wine skin. It's, it's a leather uh, wine skin. It's, it's very narrow at the end that the wine comes from. And it's kind of, um, kind of shaped a little bit like a boomerang, comes out about that far. And we call it a boot. We call it a boot, bota, right? Because it's made from leather and it looks a little bit like a boot. It's got that kind of shape there to it. And, and there's a, drink, a trick to drinking from it. You have to you have to kind of hold it a distance, okay? Now you have to make sure that you have good hand-eye coordination uh, because if not, the wine ends up in your eye. Uh, and you need to aim and then you squeeze the bottom of it. But you, you, can't, you can't just squeeze it. I made that mistake once. If you just squeeze it, it goes everywhere. You have to just give it like a very gentle little, like this kind of thing. And then it kind of comes out and it goes into your mouth. And that's how you drink from it. It is very rude to stick your lips on the wineskin because, of course, it can affect the wineskin. That said, I think part of the reason why we call it a boot, because I've never thought it really looked like a boot, is because of the taste of the wine. <laughs> it's not very good. Rough red doesn't quite capture it. It's got a... Um, A foot-like flavor. Like, <laughs> I love that. For those online, Barry just said, lacking soul. Yes, uh, that's a very good way of putting it. So it's, it's got this, it's robust. And, um, and, and I have seen people do this thing where they put it into a glass and you can see like the, the little dregs of it. Because what happens, what happens is that the wine and the leather of the boot they begin to kind of mature together. See, that adds to the flavor, it accentuates the flavor, and it adds that element to it. I am of the gaucho people group of Argentina, so you can imagine the gauchos, the horsemen, the, the cattlemen of the Pampas, with their boot of wine attached to their horse as they're going out into the cold wilderness. And that's what kept the wine chilled and nice and cool. So you're meant to have it cold. You're not meant to have it warmed up. It doesn't do much for the flavor, but apparently it's better. Um, <laughs> but I love the fact that the wine skin gives this flavor or this influence to the wine. And when considering this passage, that always spoke to me. Because I knew and understood how different the same wine could be coming from a bottle or coming from the wineskin. How something about the wineskin itself changed as a result. The leather would grow taut. It would often take on a different color. And so externally, the wineskin was vastly different from that which was originally purchased. And you could tell an old wine skin, especially when I was about to fall apart, because it starts drip, drip, drip. It starts dripping. Now, it won't drip where you think it will. 
You might be thinking, oh, it's probably from the seam. Yeah? From the seam? Where the, the boot is closed up? No. It's from the mouth. And this is what I find really, really interesting because, dear friends, I think when old, old wineskins receive the gospel, they can't hold it in. They can't keep it. And, and that's where I'm trying to get at. You know, last week we talked about how, in many respects, the church is trying to teach Christians how to do what Christians should have known how to do for a long time. And in a sense, that's a difficult thing for us to grasp and come to terms with. But in another, another sense, dear friends, it's worthwhile us remembering that that wine, that gospel, is the same. And it hasn't changed. But this wineskin that needs to receive it has to be new, has to be ready, has to be contextualized for that moment and for that time. For example, if I brought my wineskin here today, you might not look at me the same way as your minister in the future, especially because it's not in the best condition. <laughs> I haven't looked after it. I haven't tended to it. I haven't mended it. It is an ornament for me. And worst of all, it has no wine. And no, it's not because I drank it all. Um, <laughs> it's because it's ornamental. And that lends us to this other part of this picture. And I wonder how many dear friends of us have allowed our Christianity to become ornamental. I don't say this in judgment. I ask myself that same question. And I think it's a fair question for us to be asking of ourselves. So dear friends, are you ready to be filled up with wine this morning? <laughs> Metaphorical wine, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we thank you that you are here in this place and that we can engage around your word. Lord God, I love the fact that your word is open and free, poured out liberally for us to access it. And in your presence, Lord God, you can speak to us through it. So speak to us this morning, wherever we find ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, sorry, Betty. Thank you. So our passage begins halfway through the chapter, but I wanted to give you some context. Jesus had been at the Gadarenes, right? And he was in this Gentile area. He had cast out demons, but he had told people, the people who had been healed from this, shh, don't tell anyone. Why do you think that is? That's a rhetorical question. Is it because he didn't want them to declare how wonderful what had happened was? No. It's because Jesus' time had not yet come. Now, that phrase, had not yet come, is so important and crucial for us to understand. Because Jesus' time is a point in history that had been prophesied five times hundred years previously. This is really, really crucial for us to understand. There was a people who were looking for Jesus for 500 years. And yet when he was walking among them, did they recognize him? No. 
They accosted him. They chided him. They rejected him. And there are people today in our community who are looking for Jesus. And I wonder, dear friends, if they were to see him walking down the streets of Pimpama, would they recognize him? If they saw him at the shops, would they recognize him? If he walked into the church and sat down next to them, would they recognize him? I don't think they would. But there is good news. Because the prophet tells us about a point in time in which the whole world recognizes Jesus. Now, I don't think that that is a point in time, a fixed point in time, where everybody suddenly turns around and goes, Oh, there you are. Where have you been? And Jesus goes, I've been here all along. You just haven't recognized me. No, I think this is that for every person that point exists. For me, it existed at a specific time and at a specific point. And one day, I'll share with you my testimony. But for others, for some of you here today, you can think of that point where Christ was revealed to you. And I think it's so important that we recognize that for those around us, for those whom we love, that point may not have yet come. And just like Jesus said in this chapter, my time had not yet come. But in that there is a promise that it was yet to come, wasn't it? So for those people in our lives, there is that promise as well. So Jesus steps into the boat and he crosses the Sea of Galilee from the Gadarenes. And he comes to his hometown, to Nazareth. And they were there, waiting for him, to accost him, to criminalize him. They bring him a paralyzed man, lying on a mat. Jesus heals the man, raises him up. And the Pharisees who were there watching this, say, this fellow is blaspheming. Because he was taking authority to heal and to do that work. Now, this is not the chapter we're focusing on today, but I wanted to just highlight this as a context because it helps us understand. Jesus has gone into a Gentile area. He has cast out demons. He has gone to his hometown and he has healed the sick and the lame. Jesus then... Then... Thank you. <laughs> Goes on from there. And he sees a tax collector. Do you feel a little bit like the energy in the room has just dropped? <laughs> Jesus casts out demons, heals the sick. And then he sees a tax collector. <laughs> and, and we just go, so what? But this tax collector was Matthew. I imagine Matthew writing this if he wrote it or preaching this if he preached it. Trying to find out how to explain this moment. The moment when Jesus saw him and he looked back and recognized Jesus. You see, the energy's gone out of the room because to you and I, this is rather insignificant. Jesus saw a tax collector, so what? Keep moving. But to Matthew, it changed his life. 
It moved him from being just a tax collector, a corrupt official who was serving the Roman Empire, who was stealing from his brothers and sisters and giving it away to a colonizing power, to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. To being the one disciple who was consistent and teaching in Jerusalem until his death. That moment put him on a track, yes, to the end of his life. But it changed his life. So that the Matthew that got up from that table would not be the same man that initially sat down. Jesus' words here are as powerful as the ones he used to cast out the demons, as powerful as saying, get up and walk to the lame man. This expression here has in it that same sense of movement, of location. He says to him, Follow me. Our translations sometimes use the words, get up and follow me, don't they? Because it is drawing that connection which is implicit there for us to understand. Dear friends, beloved ones, when has Christ said to you, get up and follow me? Was it not life changing? Was it not inspiring? Was it not moving? This is what Matthew experienced. So yeah, to us, maybe the energy goes out of the reading. Jesus casting out demons, Jesus healing the sick. And then he sees a tax collector and goes, oh, okay. (laughs) But what we also need to understand is that this is code. This is code for Jesus saw a sinner. And for me personally, and I got emotional rehearsing this every time. Sorry, Betty, do you mind just closing the doors, please? We'll just cut down some of that traffic noise. Thank you. I got emotional every time I rehearsed this because I realized, of course, the power in this moment is in Jesus seeing a sinner. In Jesus seeing a person without that merit and saying, come and follow me. What a beautiful moment. Matthew knew that he was unworthy. And this moment for Matthew is so important. He decides to have a party. He decides to have a birthday party, if you will. Because the old Matthew that had sat down at that table had died in that moment. And a new Matthew was born. One who was ready to take all his ill-gotten gains and give them away. One who was ready to follow Jesus. Do you notice that in the disciples, Matthew does not become the treasurer of the disciples? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) You would think logically. I mean, he was the equivalent of a CPA in his day. Not that CPAs are corrupt, at least not all of them. But (laughs) that was for you, Phil. Um, But he could have been the management, the financial keeper for the group, the treasurer of the group. No, no, he wasn't. 
He didn't assume that role because that was old Matthew. That was that guy who used to be. And now he was going to go and he was going to be a new Matthew to follow Jesus. And interestingly enough, the one who did keep the purse strings was Judas. What does that say? I'll leave that one with you. Maybe you can come and chat with me about it another time. Matthew threw a party with many tax collectors and sinners, and they ate with Jesus and his disciples. And I love this bit because the Pharisees, the ones who had been proclaiming the Messiah is coming, this revolutionary hero, they saw him. And he didn't sit at the table with them, did he? No, he sat with sinners. He sat with tax collectors. And so they say, why does your master do this? Not teacher, master. There's a difference, isn't there? Just ask the kids. You see, a master is someone you want to listen to, you want to follow. A teacher merely instructs. Why does your master do this? The disciples don't have an answer. Sammy has an answer, but the disciples don't have an answer. You see, they're caught in that old way of thinking versus the new way of thinking. Even though they've seen Matthew get up from his table, they're still not in that space where they can actually respond for what Christ does and what he says. Thank you, Betty. Jesus responds to them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And if you remember in our Bible reading, this is a response to his disciples. I personally find that very hard. Because in this story, we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, aren't we? Or the sandals. But we're putting ourselves there, aren't we? We're, we're... And it's, it's us who are asking that question. I think we're asking that question today, even without knowing it, aren't we? Jesus, why aren't you here? We need you to be here, Jesus. And we fail to recognize that Jesus is with not the healthy, but the sick. Not the righteous, but the ones who need righteousness. And in this, I hear an invitation. And that invitation is for us to go with him. He quotes the prophet Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In a prophecy which is a litany of charges against Israel and what Israel has done wrong. God says, you are bringing me sacrifices. You are bringing me fattened heifers. But I don't desire this. I desire mercy. And in the Latin, mercy, misericordia, pain of the heart for your fellow human beings. What a beautiful expression that Christ brings to his disciples. 
Because I would say that that is a form of sacrifice. It's not doves. It's not heifers. But it is in many respects the greatest sacrifice we can make. Which is to bring our broken heartedness before Jesus Christ. Thank you, Betty. He then goes on to tell the story I shared with you at the beginning. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Do you know how you put wine in a wineskin? That same nozzle that squirts the wine out, if the skin is completely flattened, drinks it in. But to do that, you have to lay the wineskin down. You can't have it flapping around the place, making noise, going, blah, 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 hello, look at me, I'm so special, I'm so important. No. You have to lie down, quietly, gently. Let the table take the weight. And as you pour the wine, do it softly and gently because if it rushes in, it'll go everywhere. It'll be wasted. There's a lot of people in the world today making a lot of noise, isn't there? A lot of noise about lots of different things. And not to get political here, but I would say to you, there's a lot of Christians who are making a lot of noise about different things. I wonder how much of the gospel is being spilt in those contexts. In my culture, the culture of bottling, of not bottling, of wine skinning? I don't know. <laughs> of putting wine into wine skins. To drink spilled wine is offensive. It is disrespectful to the wine and to the winemaker. It is saying, your wine doesn't matter. The care and consideration you've given this product is not important to me. But to considerably pour that wine into the wine skin, slowly let it fill up of its own accord, and then to consume it in the appropriate way, honors the winemaker. In our case, I want to use this imagery for us to understand that when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way, we also honor Christ. We honor the one who has given us that gospel. Thank you, Betty. Dear friends, I want to Conclude with these words from the book of Hebrews. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now and already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Jesus is the unblemished sacrifice. The wine that didn't get spilled everywhere, 
but instead that was considerably and consciously taken for us. This figure of the wine is one that we then use in our Holy Communion, don't we? And although we're not drinking actual wine anymore for various and very legitimate reasons, the presence of that which we partake is the same. So friends, I ask you, let us be prepared to be these new wineskins. Let us receive that gospel in that way. But perhaps more importantly, in our sharing of the gospel with others, let us be considerate. Let us be aware. Sometimes we'd like to come along and just grab the Bible, stuff it up and just... <laughs> Have you ever heard the expression, this person needs Jesus? But let us not spill wine out of frustration. Let us be considerate. As a final thought to our conclusion, Betty, thank you. I want us to be reminded of the fact that Christ redeem us from that self-defeat, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Did you know that in scripture, it says, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of Moses' law. Paul reminds us through the Galatian epistle. That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became the curse. And at the same time, he dissolved that curse. And now because of that, the air is cleared. We are all able to receive God's life, his spirit, in and with us by believing. The lesson we have from the disciples today is this. It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to seek for that Christ. But let's be as new wineskins as we receive the answer. Let us be ready to receive that new gospel, that new wine. And let us allow that to fill us and then mature with us. So that it is not the gospel of Esteban. It is not the gospel of some other great teacher that you might hear up the front. Not that I'm a great teacher or anything like that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> it is the gospel of you. It is the way how Christ speaks into your life. And how you can speak into others. Let us finish with prayer. Father, you are good and your love endures forever. We thank you that you call us to be new vessels ready to receive your gospel. And Father God, I love the fact that the wineskin, the bota, is an instrument for sharing. That Father God, we consider our friends and neighbors so that we might be able to share this new wine and whatever it has in store for them. That this wine is meant to be enjoyed even if it doesn't taste that nice. But not to make us drunk, not to lead us away from the things of this world that are good and positive and righteous, but for us to understand and enjoy that which can be nourishing to us. And so we commit this word to you in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.